And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Reconciled invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconciled.com today. Also sponsored by www.smallbizacquisitions.com. Are you dreaming of acquiring your first U.S.-based small business but don't know where to start? Visit www.smallbizacquisitions.com exit and hit that apply now button to apply to this unique partnership program. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today, I'm here with Lori Barkman. She's been on the show before, but she's got this cool thing out now. We want to chat again about what you've done in the last year or so since we chatted last time. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you for being on the show, Lori. Oh, Ron, it's awesome. You have a great podcast. You do so much wonderful content. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, it's funny as I dialed it back a little bit for the summer. I was doing two shows a week and I was like, for the summer, the kids are off and stuff. They're like, Dad, can I have more time? So now we're only doing one show a week for right now. But probably have to spin it back up. I just got a lot of people in the queue wanting to be on. We'll probably do two shows. Popular, popular guy. I enjoy this part of it. It's like pretty much accomplished what I originally set out for, like building my skill set and stuff. But then I realized I like doing it so much. I'll probably keep this one going. As a matter of fact, I got a little side project going on the side I'm playing with. It's fun too. Like a little second pod, but it's nothing to do with mergers and acquisitions. It's just fun project. And you've been on my pod, and it's, yeah. it's always fun to get you on the other side of the mic. And you said you don't normally do that, but you that's the on only one show. I've ever done. I get a request once a week to be on somebody else's pod. I'm like, yeah, and mainly just because I considered myself such a newbie when you asked me. But uh, I just got asked again yesterday, and I was like, it would be four or five weeks out before I even consider it because I'm booked that far ahead of time with my calendar just like crazy right now. But uh, good stuff. I'm evaluating yeah. businesses to buy and stuff like that too. So let's go back, remind anybody who hadn't heard the first show, because it's been a year or so, give us your words and story, kind of how did you get into this space? And then we're going to jump right into the knowledge you have that you poured into your book and your new release and everything. So that'll be fun. I'm the business transition Sherpa, and that didn't happen overnight. That was a, That's on my own journey. And it began when I was the CEO of a privately held company. I was the part of a long-term succession plan. I was running one of the divisions of a third generation privately held firm here in Pittsburgh. And my goal was to be with this company till I retired, you know, be there 20 plus years. And lo and behold, it was a three-year journey because we were acquired by a very large global company. And as one of the executives, I was part of the M&A process, saw it up close, and of course, involved in the acquisition integration and 
found myself on the other side of that coin, on the other side with of integration, sometimes things start to get chopped up a bit. And that's what happened with me. And I joined a private equity firm for about a year, got some experience on the other side of the deal table and realized I really liked it. I've always worked close with entrepreneurs, either in startups, as a corporate entrepreneur, even in big companies. I was somebody who was always looking for growth, looking for new ideas, how to maximize value. And eventually in my career, found myself learning more and more about exit planning. And my interest was on the value creation side. How do we grow our companies so that someday someone else is going to want to acquire it from us? And that's really how I got started in all this. I would say it's about three, four years ago. But the M&A journey for me started in 2015. So I've been kind of a deal junkie looking at this from both sides of the coin and really enjoy it. I really love working with business owners. The business transition Sherpa today, what does that mean? It's really a journey that we're on. And as owners, we're working so hard to create value and how do we capitalize on that? So I work with owners pre-M&A from value creation to letting go. And on the transaction side, I'm a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor, and that's the deal side of it. Whether it's buy side on the growth, we either are doing organic growth or acquisitive growth. And I work with clients on the buy side, but certainly on the sell side from getting ready to letting go. So awesome. So you've got the experience both sides of the table. You've been on the side of working for a company that got acquired. You've been on the PE firm on the acquiring side. Now you've been in the advising side for a while. You got your own show. You talk to talk to people like I do all day. Every day you have conversations with people in this space. What do you know now? Like, what do you know now that you wish you'd have known like the day one, like in the early stages? There's some things you just kind of that just don't hit you in the beginning. That kind of you develop over time. Man, if that would have been useful to know when I first started this. <laughs> There's so many things. Yeah, the show is called Succession Stories. It's mm -hmm. a wonderful opportunity to hear stories and then connect the dots. I've always tried to be a dot connector, a builder. And so what I've learned along the way is that it really is about beginning with the end in mind. And I guess I've inherently always thought that way. It's not necessarily easy to do. So when it comes to working with business owners who are in their 60s or older, they're sometimes open-minded about these concepts about getting ready, about letting go. What does it mean to create value? And then in other times, they're really not. They're more closed-minded. So I think one of the main things here is there, there's a psychology to working with business owners in exit planning and as a mergers and acquisitions advisor. And I would like to think that I probably have more EQ than the average M&A advisor. I can't prove that one way or the other. Yeah. But I do find myself often talking with owners about the practical, of course, right? The numbers and the financial, but it's also the emotional. I just was texting and talking on the phone last night with a client. We were in the car and my husband said, oh my gosh, is that your client again? And I said, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. And so he heard one side of the conversation, but I was very calm. She was kind of like spinning up in her mm -hmm. head. She was starting to get excited. She hadn't eaten all day. She was working on the financials. She was working on something she didn't want to be working on. And she was getting agitated. And then she was starting to take it out on me. But I didn't react in the way you thought I might, right? I'm not going to react back. It's not ping pong. Right. I needed to walk her down 
from the emotion and get her back to, okay, take a break, go eat dinner, go outside. It'll be okay. We'll talk tomorrow. So that's just one small example in the big picture. This is a very emotional thing. And there's these small everyday moments where we just need someone else to be walking with us. And that's, again, why I call myself a Sherpa, because I have a process, I have a framework, but I'm with you. I'm with you on this journey. Let's do this. And it's not going to be easy, but let's find our way. You call it succession stories, right? I've watched some of them, but I don't know for sure here. Are most of the people you interview, they've already sold their business or you interviewed a lot of people like me that are just kind of full spectrum. Some of them are in it, some of them sold, some of them are advisors in this space. Definitely advisors. I talk with all kinds of advisors and definitely people looking in the rear view. But I'm so glad you brought up this question, Ron, because I've been thinking about this. I'm going to start to have more people on my show who have not yet gone through succession. And the way that I'm going to do it is because it's almost like a taboo topic. You can't talk about it. Oh, we can't talk about retiring. Oh, we can't talk about selling. They talk with me privately, but I wouldn't necessarily want to air everything on the, on the show. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start a sub-series. It's mm -hmm. still my show, but as a series. And we're going to talk about legacy. And we're going to talk about what it means for them to think forward and having that vision for a transition in the future. And it's not pinning them down to anything. It's not revealing anything they don't want to reveal. But I feel like it's a safe space to start to talk about this emotional side of it. I had lunch today with a, I'll call him a former client, even though he's kind of in the zone of being my client again. And why he was my client back a couple of years ago was we did strategic planning. And I knew that one day he's going to have a transition. He's coming up on 60. And I knew three years ago we would be in a position where he's going to want to talk about either selling or selling to a management team, et cetera. And I've stayed in touch and he's a super nice guy. And we had lunch today and I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this part of the show. And I wasn't even necessarily inviting him. I was really just looking for feedback. And he's like, great, when do you want to schedule me? There and I go. said, yay, okay, this is going to be something. So it's I'm going to have more and more people coming on. I have a gentleman that we've already recorded and he told me, he said, I've announced that I'm going to retire in three years. I've already told my people. I'm starting to tell customers. I said, great. You're going to be the first person to come on my show and say, I'm looking ahead at this. I think that's a really important message. It is. And I think it's a bad idea to hide it and wait. And like, I've met a lot of business owners, like, don't say anything to employees. You're here as a sales rep. I told everybody you're doing X, Y, and Z. And I was like, what does that make me look like when I come back? If I do acquire it, you told everybody I was here on a false premises and now I'm like, now I'm the owner. I don't like that model, but it happens. One of the reasons I was asking about the, you know, people who have already exited and how many of those you had on the show, because I have a hard time getting people who have exited mainly for multiple reasons, right? A lot of the companies, they have non-disclosures. They can't talk about the deal. They can't talk about the size of it. So out of fear, they'll say something they're not supposed to, they don't want to be on. But on the other side of it is I probably had that conversation. Hey, would you like to come on the show? 30 or 40 people in that at this point. And there's an overwhelmingly number of people who aren't happy with their exit. It's really actually kind of shocking to me. Some of these are, two of them were $25 million, $30 million exits. They're like, oh, cool, $30 million exit. What does the cap table look like? Was that mostly you? Yeah, I own 80% of it. Cool. Are you happy? You don't sound very happy. You're like, the tone of your voice is like, yeah, I'm miserable. He goes, I don't want to do now. The money isn't that important. You know, I had money before. We were making good money before, so I had investments before. I don't spend anything different. It didn't change his life because he had a great business. When you're selling something for 25, 30 million, 
you probably are making decent enough money that the windfall check isn't. He said, man, the tax guy had a bigger party than I did is what he said. <laughs> right. But I have a hard time getting people to come on the show and talk about it because they don't want to talk about the experience. And I was like, there's a lot to learn for other people. We had some, but it's, I probably get told more, no, more on that than any other topic. That's interesting. Yeah. Most of my folks who have sold, we haven't run into that third rail necessarily. Don't talk about this or that. And if they do, we don't go there. Built to sell with John Warlow. He certainly gets a lot of folks on. And it's interesting you brought up this topic about regret. I just did a presentation on this. It's fresh in my mind. And there's certainly a lot of psychology and everything around regrets. And there's some great books. Bo Burlingham, excuse me, has written a book about it. And I think Daniel Pink has a book out about regret. And it boils down when it comes to business owners. There's also a statistic from the Exit Planning Institute. You might've seen this, Ron, that they did a survey a couple of years ago or probably several years ago at this point that 75% of business owners one year after the sale express regret while only 5% are happy with their net proceeds. It's a pretty big spread. And we can have regrets about many things. We can regret the financial terms. We can regret how things went with our employees. We can regret what it means for us and our identity. And I think for many people, and it's not just selling the business, but identity is so critical. It's our mission. It's our purpose. And if we're the founder or we're part of the family business and we haven't planned what this transition is going to look like for us, it's really difficult. And I have a feeling that much regret comes from the identity separation. People are floundering. They had a prestige. They had a standing in the community. And there was one gentleman who came on my show, fourth generation family business. His brother was the CEO and he was not a key executive. So he did not participate necessarily in the financial benefit of the sale. But the family business had a consumer product. You could go down an aisle in the supermarket. You mm -hmm. could find it. It was bleach, like a, a bleach product. And he said after the sale, he couldn't even walk down the, that supermarket aisle anymore. He just couldn't stand to see that product. It hurt him too much. He gave the examples of, yeah, we would sponsor the baseball team and our name was on the t-shirts and it gave him a standing and he was really proud of it. And then when the family business sold and became part of a big corporation, just wasn't the same for him. And he definitely went into a depression. So I don't know that that's regret per se. I think it's again tied to what roles do we have outside of work? Who do we spend time with? Our tightest relationships because of work? And if the answer is yes, you're going to feel a massive separation, not only from the day-to-day -day work and feeling like you're productive, but then also socially. And that can put you into a withdrawal. You really miss it. I get it. And whether you're selling for a multi-million dollar business or you're selling your parents' business because it was left to you and it doesn't take long for you to tie your identity to it, right? Especially, I mean, a lot of people are like, well, my identity is not really tied to this. I've been running it for four years. It was my dad's business. Not what I wanted to do. I never wanted to be an XYZ, but somebody had to step up and run it. And now it's the time to do what we got to do. There's still some of this identity tied to it because of that family. I like that you brought that up because this guy wasn't in, he wasn't the CEO, but it still impacted him. And to negate the conversation of that impact because he doesn't think it's going to bug him or she doesn't think it's going to bug her. I don't think that's necessarily true. 
<laughs> yeah. There's so much planning that goes around a business transition. That's why I wrote this book, the Business yeah. Transition Handbook. And I start the chapters with the goal setting and mm -hmm. talking about a transition mindset. And I can be in a room with 20 CEOs and ask a couple of questions and I can already then tell, are they negative, positive? How do they feel about change? How do they feel about this potential thing? Just by asking them, okay, if I say the word transition, you know, what comes to mind? And in my book, I have a whole list of words and I want you to circle them. And then I want you to kind of think about or what are they, what's the connotation? Is that positive, neutral or negative? And if they're more negative, are you really going to want to participate in this? No, you're not. You're not going to do it because you're going to feel like there's a pebble in your shoe. It's horrible. You don't want to do it. If you're more neutral to positive, yeah, you'll probably participate. And guess what? You'll probably have a better outcome. And we do see that correlation with some results. And also, if you think about it from a business owner standpoint, when a business is in crisis, the owner's got a health issue, there was a death of an owner, a divorce or dissolution of a partnership, a disaster like COVID, right? With things out of our control. If a company went to sell when they're in crisis mode, what's going to happen? There's going to be a discount. Folks like yourself are like, yay, discount. Yeah. <laughs> but from the seller's standpoint, that's, that's a challenge. And then on the positive side, if there's positive reasons why you want to sell the company, like we're really growing and we want to continue to show this growth and we don't want to go on the other side of the curve. We want to grow while the getting's good. That's a positive thing, right? And you can understand, yeah, that might yield a premium. So there's this middle zone. I think the middle zone is a big watch out. So what would be a middle zone? Well, middle zone could be retiring. Why do you want to leave? I want to retire. Is that neutral? Probably. Is it going to have a big effect on your company value one way or another? Maybe, maybe not. Probably more neutral. But if we start to be complacent, if we said, well, I'm retiring in 10 years, I'm not going to invest in a computer system that needs to be out. I'm warning Windows XP from 2001. Oh. Well, I don't want to spend the money to upgrade my computer systems. Or my website's really old and I'm just going to ignore it. Or my guys are so loyal and they are all around my age. And, oh, isn't that nice? But yet we're all going to retire at the same time. That starts to become a complacency. What happens if mm -hmm. we take our foot off the gas with our customers, with our processes, with our people? It could go one way or the other. So that's the watch out zone is what's your mindset on transition? And then what does that mean as you run your business, as you start to get towards this proverbial finish line? I've seen more than one business where the entire executive staff was within a few years of age of each other. And some of them were like fraternity and sorority brothers and sisters, right? They just kind of, they just grew in the business together. They all maybe formed it in college or right after and recruited their college buddies into it. And here it is 30 years later. And in one case, I actually asked the owner, I said, who's staying when you go? So what do you mean? I said, I kind of looked at your org chart and they had photos on it when he sent it to me. Like when I looked up their LinkedIn profiles, said, I'm pretty sure everybody's about your age, right? And he's 72. And uh, he said, well, yeah. I said, how many of those people are telling you you should be retiring right now? And I think it was four out of his top five executives. When I got to the point where I talked to him, like, oh, yeah, we've been trying to get him to retire for years. We're leaving shortly after he is. I was like, that's a real problem for you. Like, no, I'm instantly not interested. And anybody that has the due diligence enough to, to learn this, you're going to have a problem. And it's a problem that takes a year or two to solve because you can't just bring somebody off the street and deem them an executive of when you're taking your entire executive team, four out of five, well, five out of six, if you count the CEO, five out of six leaders out of the company. And the sixth one was one of the executive's, other's executive's son. 
he was in his 40s or something. And when I talked to him, I don't think he was positive he was staying. Like he was there. Everybody was there out of loyalty to the owner. Which is really valuable when you're in growth mode and building value. But then when you're looking to transition, it's a risk. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely a risk. You brought up the book and you started kind of giving us outline. Let's talk about what's in the book. Let's talk about why did you put it together? What's in there for people to take a look at? Yeah, the business transition handbook is about avoiding succession pitfalls and creating valuable exit options. So each chapter is a pitfall to avoid. I was writing the book and I stopped myself midway. So the process took me quite a while. I had the fortunate situation where I had a good body of work to start with. I was using my show as an inspiration for stories. And when you have over 100 episodes and over 100 transcripts, oh my goodness, that's a lot of content. And originally, I thought this is going to be a book where I'll have stories. It'll all be about stories. And then as I started to write, I'm like, oh, wait, I don't like this. It's too much. So instead, I pivoted a bit and I tried to put myself in the seat of the reader. And I thought, well, what pain points do they have? And when it comes to pain points, what are the most common ones? And I was drawing from my experience and I was drawing from my clients and I was drawing from the show. And I came up with about 10 to 12 of them. Mm -hmm. And those eventually became the chapters. So each chapter essentially is a pitfall to avoid. So when you dive into the chapter, of course, there's content and education. I'm trying to share some knowledge, but I wanted to make it actionable. You're not going to read this book and be done in five minutes. I want you to really go through this book. You dog ear it, you write in it. I've even created a digital companion to it where all the exercises in the book, people can go to my website and they can download a PDF of like 35 pages of exercises because each of the, especially if you get the Kindle version, you're not going to mm -hmm. have the benefit of writing in it. So I was really mindful of that. And there's a, a chock full of exercises and things to do in it. But each chapter ends with takeaways, key takeaways, and a little summary table so you can write in your notes. And the stories from my show or stories from examples are woven in each chapter. So it comes to life. Someone has said to me, Lori, I feel like you're, I'm kind of with you on your show. Like, I feel like I'm listening to you talk. And I like that aspect of it. That's, again, to what I was saying earlier about being with you on your journey. You know, this book is one more thing you can take with you. And people who are reading it are entrepreneurs, companies small to big. I think you really can be a, an entrepreneur in any business. As an acquisition entrepreneur, I think you also, if you're a reader interested in this topic, you'll also benefit by understanding the psychology of the seller a little bit more and the, a little bit of whatever we say to the seller as a buyer I think you can relate just from the other side. So I think it's got a lot of value for, for folks in the lower middle market and even larger companies too. I have a friend, she works for a very large consulting firm and she read it. She said, I understand my business partners so much better. <laughs> and just some of the concepts that we cover on innovation and growth really can be highly relevant for any company. Well, give us a sample here. Tell me a story or something from the book or a key takeaway or... Yeah. One of my favorite chapters is who should own your business after you. And it's a great chapter. It's really fundamental. And acquisition entrepreneurs are mentioned. And so are you, my friend. You're in there because you were on my show. And I did take an excerpt from okay. the show that you were on. And this chapter is about framing, framing it so that you think ahead as a seller. You think yeah. ahead of who might own my business after me. Because let's face it, 100% of business owners are going to leave their company one day. 
but most are not prepared. So acquisition entrepreneurs are in the ready. They're part of a category of financial buyers is how I've explained them. So the way I laid out the chapter was I said, okay, there's three types of core buyers, strategic buyers, financial buyers, and related buyers. And I describe each of them and I describe a little bit about why, how they're different or similar to each other. And particularly for financial buyers, I think an interesting, one of the interesting things for folks they might not know is that there's this whole big, big sector of private equity. We are familiar with private equity, but we're not familiar with family offices as acquisition investors, you know, that right. buying companies. We are maybe familiar that they invest, they donate to charities and things of that nature, but to acquire companies and invest in them like private equity groups isn't that interesting because the key difference is buy and hold for a family investment strategy for infinity <laughs> versus a private equity group that's looking at a five to seven year turnaround. And that's a key distinguishing factor when you think about fit mm-hmm. and who the right fit is for the buyer. So many, or for the seller, excuse me, so many times in my show, I can't even tell you. When we talk about with a seller, who came to the table and who they ultimately picked, every one of them has said they weren't the highest bidder. They weren't the highest bidder. They were the best fit. So it was a fair price. It was a good price, but it was also culturally a fit and other characteristics. So the encouragement in this chapter is to understand the types of buyers that are out there. Think about who might be your best fit, not literally the name of the company, but characteristically, what characteristics they have. And try to understand what pain points you solve for them. Can you solve pain points for them so that they're interested in you? And also they can't replicate you. Because that's the conversation that everybody's having outside of the boardroom, right? Is like, well, do we build what they do or do we buy them? So I don't know. This is really one of my favorite chapters. If someone is thinking about selling eventually, whether it's to family, whether it's to a third party. And again, even if you're a buyer, just to understand the framework and the layout of Who else is out there that is looking for the same deals you are? When I first got into this space, one of my mentors was over in Europe. The first time I ever even heard, and I have a master's degree in marketing, but I didn't grow up around money. I grew up in a a poor farm boy neighborhood type of thing. My parents lived on a Macon Grove. We had cattle and my dad was a painter. My mom worked factory jobs. So I never even knew what a family office was. And then somebody, one of my mentors was from Europe. He mentioned, I was like, oh, it must be a European thing. And then I, one day I was looking it up and somebody else said it. And I was like, wait a second. There's families out there that manage their family wealth as an office all together. And they usually, they kind of start off at that 50 to $100 million worth of family wealth to manage. That was a new concept for me. There's a few other phrases. Like I didn't know that once you hit over, until I got money or whatever and got around it, I didn't realize that once you hit a certain amount of liquid, you get a whole different banking system. Almost every big bank has a hidden private banking system that they do for their bigger clientele. And I didn't know that existed. That said, I think acquisition entrepreneurs, and I consider myself one of those, fall on that financial thing. And not all of us are looking for like fix and flips or deeply discounted. I own a holding company. Those are long-term purchases. I do look for discounted stuff that needs a little work, but it's still growing and profitable. I think I could do it a little better. But in that realm, there's a buyer for every business. Sometimes like if, you, if your business is poorly run, the only person that's going to buy it is another operator. I don't know what class you put that in. I think you had a name for it there. But if you're a heat and air guy, you don't have anything in systems and stuff, all you have is a client list and you've been doing it for 25 years, probably only going to be able to sell that to another heat and air guy who wants to expand his client list. Yeah. And we also talk about that is recognizing what your assets are. 
it, in a manufacturing company that has inventory and machinery, we can look around and say, yeah, okay, we see all of our assets. But in a digital business or a business that, like you, a great example you mentioned of the customer database, there's assets we create that are intangible and they do have value. And the beautiful dance we do to try to find the market, bring the market together of the buyers and sellers is who really sees the value of what you have to present. I spoke with an attorney yesterday on my podcast and she helps business owners protect their assets. Mm -hmm. The conversation we had was a lot of times people go to an attorney when it's too late. There's an issue, we gotta have a lawsuit, blah, blah. Versus I've created these assets. I wanna protect these assets and grow these assets so that one day I can monetize them. And some examples would include, like you mentioned, our customer database. It could be our trade secrets and know-how, which might be our processes of how we do something. It could be a trademark or patent, something that is protected, but it's also our contracts. There's yeah. inherent value in that. So one of the one of the aspects in the book is to take an inventory of what you have. And not only is it attractive to a potential buyer, yes or no, but is it transferable? One of the statuses we might have as a business owner might be from the Small Business Administration, a minority or veteran, LBGTQ plus. You can get women, women-owned business, you can get small business owner statuses that are very particular to who you are as the owner, right? Well, how transferable is that? And if your business is tied, if revenues of your business are tied to that status, again, think about who might own your business after you. If 50% or more of my, I'm just making this up, if 50% or more of my revenue as a woman-owned business came, let's say, from government contracts because of that status, if the new owner didn't have it, they would look at your forecast and say, yeah, that's not going to work for us, right? Therefore, the price is different. All of the financials are going to be different if we own it. And therefore, the price is half of what you think it's going to be. That's the mindfulness I want people to have when it comes to, and that's an extreme example, but it is, it happens. And to be mindful of, for your assets, how attractive are they to a potential buyer? And then how transferable are they? And today's sponsor is Reconciled. Are you an entrepreneur or business owner thinking about your exit strategy? Or maybe you've just landed a business through acquisition and the books just aren't the way you need them to be. Let me tell you about Reconciled, your dedicated partner for industry-leading virtual bookkeeping and accounting services. Reconciled pairs you with skilled professionals who empower you to grow your business and prepare for success, whether that's your exit or taking that new acquisition to top performance. Imagine having high-level financial management without expanding your team, from bookkeeping to CFO services, tax advisory, and even fully outsourced accounting, Reconciled has got you covered. They help you make the best business decisions, keeping your end goal in mind. And the best part? Reconciled understands acquisitions as they have acquired three accounting firms in the past three years, and their founder, Michael Lee, mentors others in searching for acquisition, raising capital, or trying to aggressively scale. Reconcile invoices your clients, pays your bills, and delivers clear and accurate financial reports every month automatically. Ready to streamline your financials and prepare your business for the next big step? Visit Reconcile.com today and let them get your books in order. Reconciled, making bookkeeping a breeze. That's Reconcile.com. Also sponsored by www.smallbizacquisitions.com. Are you dreaming of acquiring your first U.S.-based small business but don't know where to start? 
Well, we've got the perfect solution for you, Small Biz Acquisitions. Led by the nation's leading small business buyer, Robert Nance, Small Biz Acquisitions offers a partnership program that gives you the keys to your dream business in as little as 90 days. Imagine having expert one-on-one guidance, personalized mentorship, and even financial support from proof of funds to help with that daunting down payment. Yes, you heard that right. As a partner, they'll help you overcome the financial barriers so you can focus on what really matters, buying your first small business. If that's not enough, you'll have access to their team after the acquisition for continued support. So what are you waiting for? Take the first step towards small business ownership today. Visit www.smallbizacquisitions.com exit and hit that Apply Now button to apply to this unique partnership program. Remember, your dream business is a little as 90 days away. And don't miss the golden opportunity. Robert only takes five new partners each month. Apply now. And you brought up a great one. Some of those programs, I qualify for some of them, right? A disabled veteran. I actually have a, a Cherokee card. I have, there's a lot of different things. I probably qualify for some of them. Certainly not the female one, the, the typical the typical white guy here. But uh, I have enough of those that it's important. But we also got to know that some of that preferential treatment has a timeline, right? We talked to a marketing agency where she was just lost because she had a she was a women owned business. She sounds like she's getting preferential treatment. She sold marketing and web design stuff to government agencies, and I think it's either three years or seven years is all that preferential treatment's allowed. And then she just has to bid like everybody else. And she never adapted to learning how to win those without her special treatment. She was just losing business after business because she couldn't compete in that realm. She never learned how, right? And then she's wanting to sell it to us. And like, we don't know how, and not a female-owned business. And without changing the name of the LLC and coming up with new EINs, we couldn't requalify to be, refresh that cycle. So we'd had to, would have been too disruptive to even do. I get that. So. Let's go to the next one here. But we were talking about minority-owned businesses, different preferential treatments, how that transfers over. The other side of the, you know, all that transfers over is those relationships, right? You talk about in your book on how to foster somebody else in the company to take over those relationships and get that ready so that there's a safe pair of hands in-house that that any buyer can use or what's your thought process on that? Because I run into that a lot where the owner's just too tight into everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. If we can have a business that can thrive without us, that's going to just start us on the right path. One of the check-ins is on the sales process. Are we, as the owner, the primary face? Are we the brand? Are we the rainmaker from a sales standpoint? And maybe we don't have a sales process and you're kind of duct taping it together, which is like a double whammy. So if you have a sales process, yay, celebrate that, but get other people involved. If you're in a sales meeting with a client and you're the owner and you're the only one from your company, stop, right? Just don't do that. You've got to see yourself as an enabler of others into the sales process. This gentleman I mentioned earlier, the client, very small team, like Mm -hmm. very small team, five, four people. And he was the rainmaker. So when we did strategic planning, we set a three-year goal for him and for revenue target. And then we, the detail of the plan was, well, how are they going to get there? And one of the things we identified was some sales training and putting a sales process. So it wasn't only about my client. He was the face. We had to prevent, we had to prevent issues around that. So here we are almost three years later. And I asked him, I said, what do you think about the process? And he goes, you know what? It's not so much about what I think. It was the team. They really benefited. And now here, here they are. It's about two years after the training. And 
they will bring things up in a way to connect the dots for client needs or messaging. Now they do marketing services, so they, mm -hmm. they think about this organically anyway. But they didn't know the sales process. They didn't think about cross-selling. They didn't think about really how to have a client relationship over time, what that means. It's not just a transaction and a six-month project. This is a client we want to have for years. So how do we support that? And that really made me happy to hear. It really created a lot of value from a revenue standpoint. They are tracking to the original goal. They have a stretch goal they want to hit in the next couple of years. But it was really satisfying to know that here's the same client who in a couple of years, he's going to sell. And he is on this trajectory now of what we had set for his course. And that's a good message for everyone, which is really a core message of the book, which is when time is on your side, you have more ability to create options. You have more time to close a gap in value if there is one. And when we're out of time, we're out of options. So when I first got into this space, I found something I thought I was interested in. And I'm not going to call them out here because I don't think NDAs ever expire. So I'm not going to call them out. But I thought I was interested in they were just a little chaotic. And I'm okay with that a little bit. But one of the things I convinced him to do is because he was the sales guy. I said, find yourself a rock star sales guy. And it'll be fun for you at first because like set up little competitions. You sell, they sell, you sell, they sell. And then find a second guy and make the, your lead sales guy train him. And then he goes, I can help perform both of them. I said, good, set the thing. The, the, those two sell, you sell, right? And then at some point, quit selling. Like start dialing it back. You got three guys. I said, the worst case scenario is your business grows. And it was a very sales-oriented type of thing that he was doing. I reached back out to him about four or five months ago to see how it was going because still kind of interested. And if it's performing better, I might be more interested. And he's like, well, I'm not selling it. I'm having a blast. He goes like, I go on four vacations a year now. One of the sales guys is kind of really stepping up the role. It almost could be the CEO. And that's one of the cool things with this. If you, like, especially you as an advisor, if you walk these people through this, they may end up with something on the other end. They don't have to necessarily retire out of right away, right? It's up, it's proficient, it's running well. And unless I need the money for retirement, you can, I always joke around and say uh, passive income's a myth. But I don't think the four-hour work week's a myth. I think if you built a company right, you could go in as the advisor or the board of directors, meet with your CEO, meet with your general manager, whatever you want to give the title of him, and step away from it and actually have it run better than what it was with you there. Yeah, you can, for sure. I think that's a very individualistic type of decision. You mentioned the four-hour work week, Tim Ferriss, and he yeah. had a supplements company, yet he still sold it. And one of the things that I quote from his experience is heavy is that head that wears the crown. Even though he got the business to run without him very successfully, it was always weighing on him. Mm -hmm. you know, and he talks about that as being a, one of the primary reasons why he chose to sell. So it just depends on the threshold of where we want to have our mind share. You might not physically be in the business, but your mind is. And so if it weighs on you like that, then it might be time to move on. Yeah, there's always going to be a time to move on, right? I totally agree with that. But it's like, I always kind of make the same analogy of like, you got to use car or time to get a new car. I'm going to go trade it in, but I want my best trade in value. So I'm going to go have it detailed. And I'm going to have that little nick in the window fix. And next thing you're driving it around for a couple of days before you trade it in, you're like, this isn't so bad. Why do I want to trade it in? <laughs> it's nice. It's clean. It runs great. All the little quirks that you thought, you know, and you end up keeping the car longer. I think that happens sometimes in business. If they run really well, you don't necessarily, at some point you need to, if you're in your late sixties, early seventies, and you're trying to play this game. 
I think it's a bad idea because it's going to be disruptive, whether you're doing a four hour work week or a 10 hour work week. If something happens to you and it's not 100 percent in control of somebody else, there's damage done. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now we're at the stage right now where we're advising people. You've got the books out there. What's the plan with it? Like, I'm going to get digging a little bit for, on your marketing side. I'm a marketing nerd. You're an advisor. You're out there. You got your podcast running. How's the book performing for you? Are you using it kind of a business card? Do you send the book out and potential clients or I know I got a copy. I was telling you before the show, I like my kids moved it or something. I couldn't find it. I was going to wave it on the show and now like, like they moved it on me and I was like hunting for it everywhere. But so my apologies that I didn't get to wave the book in everybody's face. Yeah, no, that's okay. You can point to my book that's standing yeah. behind me there. <laughs> well, it was really fun. I had a launch party and mm -hmm. I had family, I had friends and I held it at a restaurant. It's a restaurant, but then down in the cellar, they make mm -hmm. mead, honey, right? So they make mead. And one of the owners who sold the business is a friend. She's a fellow adjunct professor with me at Carnegie Mellon. And she was on my show. Mm -hmm. And when she was on my show, she had an LOI. I think it, they might have been already getting the purchase agreement, but she couldn't, she didn't talk about any of it. So by the time my episode came to air, I think within a week, it was announced that she sold the business. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a full circle connection. So I, when I was looking for venues, I chose that venue. Anyway, cool. I just wanted to share that little fun story. So she, I asked her to say a few words and introduced me at the party and I sold books there and did signing and stuff like that. So that's the real in-person fun stuff. And then virtually it's been, the response has been wonderful and people have been gracious to, to read the book. They can get it on Amazon and there's this digital PDF that I mentioned. If they want to get a copy of that, they can get it from my website. So the feedback so far with, in book reviews and people sharing their feedback with me is just really amazing. And I really appreciate the feedback because it's so nice to know how it's helping people. And I think it's also a way for, I want to work with larger companies, let's say companies that are five to 20 million and 25 million in revenue, but smaller companies, especially women-owned businesses that are under a million in revenue. And there are a lot of them out there. Some of them have come to want to work with me and I'm trying to have an offering for them, regardless of gender, but regard for the smaller companies that want this advice, it's the same advice. Now, here's a, an affordable way to get it. It's a little more DIY, but it is available. And I think it's a way to share the message more broadly. I am thinking that it could be a course also. Mm -hmm. So I haven't committed to that, but that might be something that I do next year. I'm also doing speaking engagements. I'm working on various presentations as a keynote and workshops. I do workshops for CEOs and business owners and the feedback on that is always very, very good. It's always enlightening. People benefit from the education, even if they'll say, oh, well, I'm not doing this now. And I say, I know, <laughs> but you will do it at some point. So those, that's the marketing. And it, it is like a calling card, just like the podcast has been for me. It's yeah. funny, I'm at my business card now on the back. I have a picture of the, my icon from the show and I have a picture of the book and two QR codes for each. So if you want to check out the show, you want to check out the book and it makes it easy to connect with me and I do think that it's an interesting way that we are, have evolved as marketers. I've been a marketer for 25 plus years. And in the evolution as an entrepreneur marketer, that we are marketing ourselves and our service and how we benefit, right? And there's so many more tools available and there's an infinite number of possibilities. So one of the things that I always have to check in on is like, 
not driving myself crazy to say, oh, I should do that or I should do that. I should do that. And just be okay with what I am doing, Mm -hmm. own it and do it really well. And if it's not working, then try something else. And so I've been trying to get better at that and not feeling almost like a guilt, like a FOMO. It's like a marketing FOMO. Like, oh, I should do that too. (laughs) It's like, I was going to ask you, like, do you have anybody that wants to be coaches underneath you? Because then you could do the, like, look, I'll bring in three coaches. They'll handle everything that's under the 25 million. I have a system. I have a process. I know how I want it to go. These coaches will take care of you. And then you get to focus on the bigger guys that need individualistic attention. I like that idea a lot. I haven't initiated that yet, but maybe here people are listening and they want to talk with me about that. I'd be open to it. I do have a framework and a process and Mm -hmm. a platform that I'm licensing and people can get trained on that platform as well. And it could be a really good, that could be a really good partnership. So that's a really cool idea. That'd be a cool way to to do it. Like I did it in the real estate world. There's certain things I wanted to do and everything else. I kind of knew who was there. So I would help them. They would call, they knew they could call me any given time and ask me questions. But when they got one of the deals I did, they just forwarded it to me. So we got a lot of referrals that way. And then, because I mean, a lot of these people that are just becoming advisors, maybe they've got an exit or two behind me. If they've been a broker for a while, they know the basics, but they want to do more advising. They're not ready for a $25, $30 million exit where you are, right? So they can refer those up to you and then you give them more. I think it's a symbiotic relationship you could create with somebody that really wants to be in the space. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Cool. I'm going to go back to my marketing nerdness here. What's next for you as far as you're speaking, you got the book out there, you got the coaching thing. Are you just still like you got the podcast? Are people like buying the book and they want to come on the show? Because I'm seriously looking, maybe putting a book out in the next year or two. Broader, broader concept, but I already had the title picked for it. But uh... <laughs> yeah, I think that writing a book is a very serious endeavor in the sense that it takes a lot of time. And I'm the kind of person that from a quality standpoint, if I don't mm-hmm. think it's good quality, I'm not putting it out there. So that's why right. I had to stop and rewrite and the whole thing. So if you're going to write a book, I'm definitely going to encourage you. You've got a lot of great stories and a lot of things to share with your audience. And I'm happy to talk offline about about book writing. I'm going to give a plug for a company that I'm working with called Book Thinkers. And you're a marketing nerd, so you'll like these guys. So as a podcaster and as an author now, there's these communities, right? You join these communities. So when I became a podcaster, it was like, wow, just the door open to the connections you make from podcaster to podcaster. So what I'm trying to do as a podcaster is I, I certainly enjoy the craft, right? It's a great, it's a medium. I'm enjoying it. I like storytelling. I love asking questions. It fits me. And what I'm trying to get better at with the show is having be a conduit more tidy with business development. It has been. I have had literally have clients that have called me up. I've been listening to your show for years, blah, blah, blah. Now I want to be a client. That has happened. And that's mm-hmm. pretty cool, right? And there's an ROI bump done. At some point, then what's the get, right? There's got to be some of that. And one of the things I've been thinking about is the guesting strategy. And that's why I want to have more business owners who come on who are future thinking. And I think that'll be a great way to not only showcase some of my clients who I've worked with, but also potential people that I might want to work with at some point. I've always, from day one with the show, had collaboration partners, right? Financial planners and accounting firms and law firms. That's always been part of my collaboration and hearing stories from business owners. But this other aspect of looking forward is new. So that's my encouragement for all the podcasters out there is to try to find that real connection that you can. Not every guest you have 
is going to be a client. We know that. And that's right. okay. And that's, but I think for me, this is something new that I'm trying out and in relationship building, right? Because the show is a calling card for, for folks to listen. How can we use this content to create a relationship with each other? Mm -hmm. You and I now, this is our third conversation, right? Because right. you were on my show and I'm now on your show twice. I think if I came to the Redwoods and found you in California, you and I could hang out and have a beer. Yeah, would we would be, be friends because yeah. we've been talking for three hours. Yeah, we would know each other. Like you see, that's one thing I've just now getting to the point of. I'm sure you got to the point of this too at some point where you're usually if it's somewhere business related, like I'm at a conference or something like that, or I, even if I go down, give myself away. I was playing poker in a poker place right by one of the colleges. There, one of the guys saying poker beside me was a professional ball player, but he's doing a business degree, and he looked over at me and goes. You look really familiar. Do you have a podcast? I was like, yeah. He goes, man, I watch your stuff. I'm going to buy a business as soon as I, I say he's a pro ball player, a professional baseball player, but there's different tiers, right? Like he wasn't, he's not in the San Francisco Giants or whatever, but he was in like a level two or three below that, but he gets paid to play baseball. But yeah, you get noticed out in the street a little bit. It's kind of fun. In business conferences, it's a lot more. Like if I go to something or if I show up at a networking thing, a business networking thing, BNI or one of those things, and I'm kind of visiting something. People know who I am sometimes, so that's fun. But what I'm doing, and I'm just going to share this with you because it might be helpful to use. I have a little campaign I run every once in a while called I Know a Guy, and I tell people all the time, if you get stuck in a deal, right? If you're working on merchants and acquisition, you're trying to buy a business, sell a business, grow through acquisition, and something's in your way, don't let that happen, man. After interviewing 160 people, I probably know a guy. So reach out to me. Tell me what you're dealing with. Tell me who, what you're trying to, what the road block is what you're trying to get past. And if I can make a referral for you, I will. In full 100% disclosure, I ask everybody that's been on the show, do you pay for referrals? A lot of times I give referrals to people who don't pay. It's just, the I always try to send people to the best possible referral, whether they pay me or not. But I'm also a little bit of a capitalist. So if, if you've got a referral program and it's available, I'll use it. But that said, I think I'll make more money in the next this year and next year on the podcast anyway than I will ever from my sponsors and things from all those referrals by probably 5x. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great idea. It's clever and it adds value. Uh, like I know people that raise capital, I know people brokers and advisors, I know lawyers really can't do that very often. Most states have state laws that say a lawyer can't pay a referral fee to anybody that's not an attorney and not on the case, but most of the other ones can. SBA lenders, I got SBA lenders that'll give me between 1 or 2% of the entire loan. Like that's a heck of a referral. Just keeping that database and knowing really who and it helps me when I interview people, like at the end of the interview, I was like, would I really send anybody there? Because some people I don't. Not you, I would definitely. Oh, well, but some people are like, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know great know. information. Yeah. Do they know enough to entertain us for an hour? Yeah. Do they know enough that I'm going to let somebody do a multi-million dollar transaction? Uncertain. I don't know. I've had any, like I've never, maybe one where I'm like, yeah, not. But there's been a lot of uncertainty. Like I'm not there yet. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. And I think referrals are really powerful. My clients... I tell them, look, my Rolodex is your Rolodex. And if I make a recommendation, they usually go for it. When you become a trusted advisor, they trust yep. the other people you trust, right? Right. And it works, right? I'm a big blue ocean person. I really believe that people need help occasionally. They get stuck and they're afraid to ask for help. So if you've got the, the gumption or the moxie to say, hey, man, I'm stuck over here. I need some help. I don't care if I know you or not. A lot of people think that's another thing about these podcasts is really cool. People that do introduce themselves to you, they think they talk to you like they've known you forever and you just met them. But I had one kid, he actually sent me this message and it was kind of a, I'm jokingly call it a fanboy message, but uh, he's like, 
I know you're never going to call me, but my number is this. I'm in college. I've watched a hundred and something hours of your show. I'm making all the way through. Like this kid spent a hundred hours of his life. Listen to me <laughs> speak to random people, advisors and brokers and brilliant people in the world. But he spent a hundred hours of his life. I just dialed the phone. I dialed him right then and there. It's like, hey man, this is wrong. He's like, it's like talking to a celebrity. I was like, yeah, not really. I'm just an average <laughs> Joe. And now he's going to our networking things. He's already on a business track in college, but he's meeting up with these guys and learning this space and hanging out at the things that we set up for people to hang out in. And I think he's going to make it. I think he's going to be in this space. And he's already talking about trying to take internships at, at PE firms and stuff. I was like, dude, that's a tough track, but you'll learn a lot, right? You're talking 60, 70 yeah. hour weeks on a lot of these guys. They really work yeah. their interns hard, but you're going to learn an immense amount of stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. It's fun when the audience reaches out. It's nice to know who's listening. Cool. Let's circle back around the book here. The book's out there. Who's the perfect, like, who is the book written for? So if somebody's out there thinking, is this a book for me to read? Who's it written for and who's it perfect for? And then I know any of us can read it and gain some knowledge from it. But like, usually when you write something, you have a persona. Like you're talking about in the chapter of Built. So you talk about creating a business buyer persona, the outline of who should be the, who's the ideal candidate to own your business. We call that a persona or a, what's the other word for it? There's another nickname for it. Who's the perfect person? Like if you're doing X, Y, and Z, you really should buy the book and you should really call me. Yeah. You're a founder. You're an owner, either through founding or buying the business, mm -hmm. but you're on the business and you're probably working in the business day to day. From a stage of life standpoint, are starting to think about your next transition or your transition in your entrepreneurial journey. So this is not necessarily a book for startups, mm -hmm. although I don't want to discourage a startup if they're reading it. They're going to get a lot of value out of it, out of it because they're, they're in business building mode. So there, there's that. But I think for the intention is clearly for the seller. That said, a secondary audience would be people who are working in family businesses. Perhaps you are part of the family ownership structure, or if you are a next-gen leader in an organization, I think this book will help give you an appreciation. And if you're a second in command at a privately held company, I think it'll also help you. And for the acquisition entrepreneurs out there to see the other side of the table, look at things from the other side, the other lens, I think this will also help acquisition entrepreneurs too. Awesome. And if your mom or dad's trying to get you to be the second generation business owner, you don't want to do it. Buy them the book as a gift. <laughs> yes. And jump to chapter 12. Yeah, yeah, yes. There you go. I get a lot of that. I actually, that's one of the outreaches I get more often probably than the business owner. The show is called How to Exit, but we talk about so many things. So I don't get as many business owners trying to exit the watch that I like. But I also get, I've got cold calls. Like people hunt down my phone number, call me, go, hey, my dad's trying to leave this business to me. I don't want it. How do I sell it to him? Like, they I get it. I want it sold. One of the guys like, I've got a, I'm an MD. I got a medical thing. And my dad has this factory and he wants me to drop out of, you're going to make more money taking over my manufacturing company. He's like, I just don't want to do it. And I was like, working on getting him to sell it. He's not, he built it for me. He's like, he's not going to sell it. He built it for me. So that was a fun conversation. But now I'll just say, Hey, here's a book. Here's a website. Here's somebody to go talk to. And let's get this thing ready. Cause it takes time. He's not going to take over that business and run it for three years. He probably wants to get somebody working on that, those steps right now. Yeah. That's why I put a chapter in there about that from a management team perspective and from family. Don't make assumptions. There's one of my clients that his second in command literally packed up with his wife and moved to Spain because <laughs> she's from the EU originally mm -hmm. and he could, they could live anywhere in the EU. And two years ago, right around COVID, 
they did. They moved to Spain and they're buying a house and he's not moving back to the States. And my client thought that this might be a person to buy the business one day. But as soon as that happened, out the window. That's why we want to have options. Yeah, you want to have options. You want to have contingency plans, plans and contingency plans, right? That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, tell us, how do you want people to reach out to you? Like we now we know who the book's for. They can get it on, I've got it open right now on Amazon. So you can get it on Amazon. They can reach directly to you. So what's the best way for people to reach out to you? The business transition Sherpa.com is my website and the book is on there, the podcast and some assessments. If people want to take a personal readiness assessment, they're more than welcome to do that. A lot of the themes we talked about today, they can take that and set up a call with me. We'll go through the results. They can also take a business readiness assessment. And if they put in some financials, they can even get an estimate of value, which is really cool for no cost. Yeah, which is really cool. And so please do that. Please visit there and also connect with me on LinkedIn. Let me know you heard me on how to exit because Ron and I would love to know that. Yeah. yeah. And just reach out. You can set up time with me, book a time with me and we'll talk about your goals. And I really encourage people to do that. This is like the second or third conversation, third conversation we've had on, behind a mic. And then I see a lot of the content you post. So I feel like I've talked to you a lot more. You really put out a lot of good information out there. It's really helpful to the community. And I, I see all of small, medium businesses at a community. Some people just don't realize they're in it yet. But if you yeah. own a company and you're doing say less than 10 to 25, depending on the industry, less than 25 million in some industries, but uh, I'm talking valuation of selling. You're in this small, medium business community. Now the trick is, do you want to get engaged with the rest of the members of the community and help move yourself forward or not? I appreciate you. I think that's, if you don't have anything else to add, we'll just call that a show and uh, tell people, reach out and get that book, read it. I'm going to find out what my kids do with my copy and finish it or get it on my, I just realized I can just put it on my Kindle. So I might just go straight for that, but uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll call that a show. All right. Thanks so much, Ron. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the itexchangenet.com slash marketplace, how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now.